Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, John, uh, for sharing. Alex, thank you so much for leading us so well into worship, and uh, we're grateful to God for you, brother. And um, just a few announcements for you. Uh, next Sunday evening at 7.30, we're going to have a, um, a communion time as a church family through a Zoom call. And uh, we've prayed about whether or not to do this. And one of the one of the compelling reasons we were thinking of it is uh, we thought it would be great for all of us to share it together, but for us to be able to share it together as families as well and for fathers and mothers and uh, children to be able to uh, communicate to one another the significance of what the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ signify to talk about salvation, to talk about the gospel together as a family. And so we're going to have a Zoom call uh, next 7.30 to remember Jesus and his suffering and his shed blood on the cross for us. Uh, we wanted to give you some advance notice so that you can have uh, you know, your bread and maybe you can buy either grape juice or cranberry juice uh, for uh, remembering the Lord's suffering in our place. Uh, we want to encourage you just to prepare your children ahead of time. One of the things in relation to um, uh, participating in communion or the Lord's Supper is uh, it's important first for you actually truly to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we want to encourage you uh, children and teens to contemplate whether or not you are truly born again, whether you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus. And parents, it's an opportunity for you to lead your children into uh, an understanding of the gospel and whether or not there is true saving faith in the life of your son or your daughter and to help guide them and lead them spiritually into that. Uh, one of the things we would encourage you to do is if, uh, if you've not been water baptized, take this opportunity to talk about that as well. Hearing the gospel the, in the early church, the people would hear the gospel preached and they would repent of their sins. They would trust in Jesus Christ. And then immediately they would be publicly water baptized. And so that's a command in scripture. And uh, we believe in believers baptism here in our church. When you trust in Jesus Christ, um, it's an opportunity for you and uh, to, to really obey the Lord's command for water baptism. And then after you're water baptized, then Throughout the rest of your Christian life, one of the joys is participating in the Lord's Supper every time the church remembers when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me uh, throughout the uh, entire life, uh, our lives. We have the uh, visible words of the elements of communion, the, the broken body of Jesus Christ symbolized by the bread and the shed blood of Jesus Christ symbolized by the cup to remember the Lord Jesus and his suffering. It's, it's also indicative of how important it is. We talk about being gospel-centered and, and uh, keeping Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead as the, the, the matter of first importance for the church. One of the arguments for that um, is Jesus actually having the Lord's Supper instituted where he wanted to be having remembered regularly before his people his broken body and his shed blood, the gospel, his sufferings, and what he did on our behalf on the cross, constantly put before our minds by way of remembrance. And uh, that's a very, very significant point. So I think it's an opportunity for us to talk about salvation with our family. It's an opportunity to talk about water baptism, perhaps even this summer. Um, if you've not been water baptized, uh, we want to make sure, teens, that you truly have been born again. And uh, it might be an opportunity for you to pray about water baptism. And then um, after you're water baptized, you can participate in communion. So two of my children haven't been water baptized. We're seeking to tell them about Jesus and lead them to the Lord. And uh, we believe that they've come to saving faith in Christ. But we're just talking with them as parents about the significance of the public profession of faith before the church that water baptism is and what we're trying to do is to make sure that we uh, we have them take that seriously and really count the cost of being a Christian uh, throughout their lives so the water baptism is a very significant prayed upon event in each one of our children so that when they do it they don't do it to please their parents and they don't do it to please anybody other than they're doing it 
for the Lord and to glorify Him and please Him. And then following that, after water baptism, we'll have our children start to participate in the Lord's Supper. So if you're not a Christian yet, we'd ask you to refrain from partaking in the Lord's Supper. And also, uh, we'd encourage you to really make water baptism a real priority so that you can really continue on in the Lord's Supper as well. Um, Even though that's the biblical order to be water baptized and then participate in communion, um, if you've genuinely been born again, and uh, you feel compelled to want to participate in the Lord's Supper, um, we, we believe that you can do that and do that with joy, and, uh, and they, that'll, that'll be blessed by the Lord if you do that. So, um, But it's important to remember baptism because that's very significant and precedes the participation of the Lord's Supper throughout the New Testament. So just keep those things in mind. Talk about that with your children. Pray together as a family. So we were we really thought that this could be a really positive time to talk about the significance of communion as a church family as a whole as we kind of celebrate it together through the Zoom call, but also give you an opportunity um, to remember the Lord as a, as a family as well. So we're really looking forward to that. That'll be next Sunday at uh, 7.30. And uh, we'll send you the Zoom link for that uh, coming up. Also, just related to uh, future plans, related to church service in relation to the coronavirus. Well, you know, we're all so eager to want to get together again, and we're looking forward to that as well. I want to just assure you that from the very beginning of this, John and I, just as your pastors, have been praying earnestly and seeking counsel on uh, what's best to be done for our church family in the midst of this time. And uh, we are eagerly praying and seeking the Lord now, especially as there's been some uh, encouraging developments related to uh, signs that, you know, we may be able to meet together again in the not too distant future. And we're very excited about that. And we want to do everything we can as we're going forward here to get good godly counsel from the other leaders in our church. So John and I are going to be having a leaders meeting tonight. Uh, with the, the care group leaders um, and assistant care group leaders and their wives and also the deacons and their wives to talk about uh, just just what's in front of us as a church family uh, so that we can really get as much wisdom. We can all pray together and uh, so that we can meet together again uh, exactly when the Lord desires us for, uh, to do so. And so if you would just join us in prayer, church, for just wisdom from above, because we feel our need for it. There's so many variables, so much knowledge flying at us and uh, on, on a daily basis and things changing all the time. And so um, please pray that God will give us as your pastors wisdom in navigating this, but also uh, just as a church family, that God would give us collectively wisdom as to what to do best and uh, when and how to do it right for the glory of God. So thank you so much uh, for that. And we'll keep you posted on just what our, our future plans are as, as, as they develop. So, excellent. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you could open your Bibles up to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 is going to be our scripture uh, this morning that we're going to read from God's Word from. And I want to just let you know that the... Uh, The title of the message this morning is From Labor to Glory, From Labor to Glory. And I want to read um, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 23. So let's, let's read God's word together. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, 
I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promises that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for just the opportunity to look at your word, to hear from your precious word of truth. And Holy Spirit, we pray for your presence to come upon us and fill us, your people. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't believe in you, I pray that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as a result of hearing your word this morning. Thank you so much for this moment in redemptive history that we're looking at here. Touch our hearts and help us to see Christ in these scriptures. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed uh, watching the ESPN documentary um, called The Last Dance, which has been about Michael Jordan, who had an ambition to be the very best basketball player of all time. Many regard him as such, but it's up for debate. He won with the Chicago Bulls six NBA championship trophies, and he sought after it. He worked hard for it, and after seeking after it hard and working hard after it, uh, there was a certain degree of glory that the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan enjoyed after all of their labor and hard work was through. Here in 959 B.C., the temple that Solomon had built with the help of the Lord and with the help of the people of Israel was completed. That's the context we find ourselves in here, 959 B.C. And we see the people of Israel gathering together and experiencing God in a very special way. And we're going to look at that here this morning. The first point I want to look at is seek first the kingdom of God. Number two, build up. God's house. Number three, behold his glory. And then, th- and then fourthly, know God like our God. Let's look first at seek first the kingdom of God. I mentioned uh, a moment ago the last dance and Michael Jordan and the six NBA championship trophies, but I was really struck as I was looking at that and then I was contrasting the glory of man and all that man aspires to versus the the glory of God seen in this passage where the glory of the Lord comes in the form of the cloud into the temple of the Lord at the day, this wonderful day of the dedication of the temple. And I I couldn't help but think of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where uh, the word of God says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 9 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. There's this contrast 
from building for things that last only in, in a temporary vein versus that which will last forever. Glory which will last forever as opposed to perishable glory and perishable trophies. Even with, I was struck, even with six championship trophies, they're perishable. And only the work that's done for Jesus Christ and for his glory is work, as C.T. Studd once said, work that will last. Only what's done for Christ will last and will, will, will work and will endure through the, the fire of God's judgment on the final day. There is an imperishable glory that we are to seek and aspire to that differs from the glory that men and women with all their goals athletically and otherwise, with their gifts and talents, seek in this fallen world. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says to us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In 1 Kings chapter 7, which is where we left off last week, if you look at verses 1 through 12, just by way of context here, we see that in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 7, Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. And then in verse 8 of 1 Kings chapter 7, it says, his own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. And Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. Now, this is after the work of the temple was completed. It took Israel seven and a half years to build the temple. And after the temple was built, Solomon then built his own house and his wife's house. And it took 13 years for him to build his own house. And just by way of setting up just this dynamic here, um, before the, the, the temple was dedicated here in 1 Kings chapter 8, it's often, it's often stated that Solomon spending only seven and a half years building the temple compared to the 13 years he spent building up his own house signifies that his priorities weren't right and weren't in order. But as, as I was studying this passage, I, I, I believe that it was important to note that in this case in Solomon's life, King Solomon prioritized the building of the temple with energy and zeal that took only seven and a half years compared to the 13 years that it took to build his own house afterward. And, and to that, I just want to point out to us all that I believe that the speed of the completion of the temple shows that it was a top priority for Solomon. He prioritized what David, his father, said about getting the temple built. And it shows goodness in him as king of the people of Israel during the beginning of his reign and his heart for God, the, the pulpit commentary speaking of Solomon prioritizing the kingdom of God even over his own house, says the longer period spent over his own house does not argue selfishness or worldliness on Solomon's part. On the contrary, it speaks well for his piety that he built the temple first and urged on that sacred work with so much vigor. He marshaled the energies of all of Israel and all their craftsmen along with Hiram, who was king of Tyre, or the king of the Sidonians, to, to make sure that lumber was provided. And they marshaled all the gold so that the, the temple of the Lord would be built architecturally beautifully and magnificent with the, the pure elements of gold all the way throughout. It was a wonderful structure, a glorious structure that Solomon threw his heart and soul into. And Matthew Henry writing about Solomon seeking first in this instance, the kingdom of God says, we ought to prefer God's honor before our own ease and satisfaction. That's a great quote, isn't it? 
um, and one that's so important for us to apply, brothers and sisters, into our own hearts this morning. I want to ask you, as I ask myself, are we preferring God's honor before our own ease and satisfaction? Are we most passionate about building up God's house even above our own? Matthew 6.33 says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, food and clothes and the things that we worry about, the reason we're called not to be anxious is we are to focus on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto us as well. And it's important to note that though Solomon's heart strayed later on from the Lord due to his attachment to many different worldly things. Here at least he shows that God and his house are his top priority. And brothers and sisters, it's important for us likewise to make God and the building of his house and the seeking of him with our hearts the first priority and the greatest ambition of our lives. Let us run to obtain the prize, but not strive after perishable wreaths. And young people, I want to encourage you as well, as you're looking for goals for your life, make sure that you're not striving for that which is just of perishable glory, but strive after seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As we see the people of Israel doing here, in building the temple first, even before his own house was built. May we likewise labor hard to build God's house and prioritize the building of God's kingdom first, even above our own desires and our own dreams. We are a nation of dreamers in American culture, and you hear often, go for your dreams. And that's a good slogan when your dreams are the right kinds of dreams. Let our dreams be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to prioritize the things of Christ, and the building up, and joining Christ in the building up of his church, so the gates of hell will not overcome it. And prioritize eternal things over temporary, all for his glory. Many, many give to God what is left rather than the first fruits of their life. Their time, their money, their talents. They give God what's left after they've spent all they can on the things in this life, they prioritize the things of God second. But there's a principle in Scripture throughout that we are called to give to God our first fruits. And what that means is like Solomon building the temple first before he built his own house, there's a principle here that Solomon and us, we are called to give our first fruits to the Lord, to make sure that God is first in our hearts and that his kingdom is sought after first and the advancement of the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel is our greatest priority. So brothers and sisters in Christ and Christ Community Church, may our dreams be about how we might contribute to the building up of God's house. Let loving the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength be our life's great ambition and our prize that we seek after. And even so, as we seek to seek the kingdom of God first more, we recognize that we have all fallen short of the glory of God in our sin. But there's one who didn't, and that's Jesus Christ. And he alone is our hope. He is our salvation And when we trust in him, his perfect sinless life, his perfect seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is credited to our sinful account. And we are forgiven of our sin by his blood. 
and we're also justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and his blood. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's move to uh, point two, the building up of God's house. Um, this is seen in 1 Kings chapter 7. If you look in verses 13 all the way through to the end of the chapter, uh, Solomon gathers all of Israel to marshal their labors. And, and there's description not only of the temple being built, but in verse 48, if you look in 1 Kings seven forty-eight, it says Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord the golden altar, the, this is where the sacrifices were offered up, which, which pointed ultimately to the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood sacrifice, his substitutionary atonement on the cross. The golden table for the bread of the presence, and the, the bread of the presence speaks to and pointed to that Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and, and he is the one who we are to partake of by saving faith to give us eternal life. The lampstands of pure gold also pointing us to Jesus, the light of the world. All these things point to Christ. And, and Solomon saw to it that the vessels as well were, were, were all built up. And it's, it's wonderful to look at um, all the details of this. And down in the second half of verse 50, we see that even the most holy place was, was, was put into place. And uh, we, we remember this because of what Christ and his finished work on the cross did that the, the temple that separated the most holy place from the rest of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom, which now Jesus has opened a way for us to enter into the most holy place because of the blood uh, that he shed on the cross for us. And so the temple is all pointing to dynamics of the gospel of being reconciled to God and it's all being built here with perfect gold and purity. And verse 51 says, Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. I love that verse 51 highlights that Solomon didn't just start his building on the house of the Lord, but he saw it through just like his father commanded him to do. Be strong and do it, his father said. And he did. He labored hard for seven and a half years along with the people of Israel to to build up God's house. And it was done. And the work of Solomon on the house of the Lord was finished. And the temple was loaded up with treasures. What a glorious image this is. And it's so descriptive of our situation with regards to the gospel. Christ is has finished his work of atonement. And those of us who repent of our sins and believe in Christ are forgiven and saved. We're given eternal life. And we await the day, as we labor now, we await the day when we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and enjoy the glory of the Lord in the house of the Lord. God is building his house even as Israel was building the house of the Lord here in 1 Kings 7 and 8. God's building his house now. It's a spiritual house, as we read about in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. If you'll read with me in your Bibles, this glorious section in 1 Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's speaking of Jesus, you yourselves, he's speaking here to the church, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's speaking of Christ. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is talking about the, the difference between the way God's people will receive Christ by faith and the way that unbelievers will reject Christ 
and be offended by him and stumble over him. And it says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Isn't that glorious? Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And verse 12 is even instructive for us during these times where we're interacting with the world as the people of God in relation to uh, what we're facing in our times today, even with the coronavirus, the, the, this admonition, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable and letting honorable conduct be what drives our souls as we interact with other believers, but also as we interact with unbelievers, interact with the world. We are to be honorable because we are a spiritual house being built as living stones. The work of atonement is finished by Jesus Christ, but the work of building up God's house goes on. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are engaged in sharing the gospel to see spiritual stones built together into a spiritual house. And that precious work of the Lord, the salvation of souls through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it continues on by the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ's church and cannot be stopped. And I love the way in, in 1 Kings chapter 7, it's like, all of Israel is marshalling its talents and its gifts and its energies and, and its resources to see to it that the, the house of the Lord is built up. So they were called to seek first the kingdom in their hearts, but also to build up the house of the Lord with their labors. And we likewise in our hearts are to seek first the kingdom and with our energies and our ambitions to build up God's house with these lives that he's given us to live. So let us strive on with energy and zeal to do just that. Point three, behold his glory. In 1 Kings chapter eight, in the section we read in the beginning in verses 10 and 11, let's reread these. These are, these are awesome verses. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand a minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I love how when the temple is being dedicated, God shows up demonstratively to show his glory and his presence amongst the people of God. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant, it symbolized the, the presence of God amongst the people of God. And we remember that through this truth that, and, and this is important for us, brothers and sisters, that the presence of God is amongst the people of God, his church today. Jesus says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And all the way throughout, this is a, a doctrine that flows all the way from the history of redemption, all the way through from, from Israel being in Egypt and delivered out of Egypt and through their wilderness wanderings having the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, symbolizing that the presence of God was amongst the people of God. Then the Ark of the Covenant comes and the presence of God in the tent dwelt amongst the people of God and, and God's glory would shine so much so that even at Mount Sinai, when the glory of the Lord was shown to the people, the people were afraid of it because of how glorious and powerful God's holiness was displayed before them. The glory of the Lord caused Moses' face to shine under the old covenant with brilliance in a way that his face needed to be veiled because it was so glorious. And here, that glory envelops the temple of the Lord that was newly built, newly dedicated, and the priests couldn't even stand to remain in the presence of the Lord. 
What a powerful image this is. And when we, we see this, it's meant to cause us to look forward with anticipation to the day when we, as God's people, will likewise see the glory of the Lord shining when we are in the new Jerusalem. I want to read to you in Revelation chapter 21 and read this verse together with me. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is talking about the new Jerusalem when we, when we go to be with the Lord as believers. And it says about the city, what a glorious city this is going to be, church. Look at verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So the glory of God radiating in the new Jerusalem is going to be so brilliant that verse 24 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything, or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, repent. Oh, believe in Jesus Christ while there's still time. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are going to enjoy seeing with their new eyes the glory of the Lord in the presence of the city of our God. And brothers and sisters, what a day this is going to be. What brilliant radiance is going to shine when the glory of Christ is shining so brilliantly that it lights up the entire city to the point where verse 24 says, by its light will the nations walk. We get just a small taste of it here in 1 Kings chapter 8. And not even the priests could stand in the midst of this glory. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we, when we stand before the Lord on that day in Revelation 21, 22 through 24, we are going to be able to stand in the presence of the glory of Christ and see him face to face and be in his presence and not be consumed, though his eyes are flames of fire and his glory will light up the city. We will be fit by God with our new resurrected bodies that we will enjoy forever in heaven to see him and to be in his presence without needing to be removed. The privileges and what we have to look forward to as the people of God, now born again and saved under the new covenant, all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus and have placed their faith in the promised one, old covenant and new, the people of Israel and the people of the church, one people of God will be gathered together in the new Jerusalem and will be in the immediate presence of the glory of Christ and will not be consumed, but will be able to enjoy it forever. It's going to be so wonderful, church. I can't wait to be there together with you. And this is our future if we trust in Jesus. All of this darkness in this world that's affected by coronaviruses and all other manifestations of the fall, that will forever be behind our back and all we will have then is glory. In his temple, all will cry, glory, glory. John Piper, speaking of the glory of God. He was having a conversation with R.C. Sproul before R.C. Sproul went into glory last year when he was speaking with R.C. Sproul about 
what God's holiness is and what God's glory is. Piper said, and I'll never forget this, he said that the glory of God is when the holiness of God goes public. And we get these glimpses, these glorious glimpses in the Old Testament. And that's why I love the Old Testament. You get these glimpses of God that are so awesome where the temple is being dedicated and the glory of the Lord comes in the form of the cloud down into the temple sanctuary and everybody needs to clear out. This is God's house where God's presence dwells and God's glory dwells. And you can see some of why Jesus was so offended when people during his time sought to turn it into a marketplace and a den of thieves that this is a house of prayer. This is a house where my father's presence dwells. And clear out all those who would seek to diminish the the glory of this place. We likewise are to have a zeal for the house of the Lord and for the glory of the Lord. There were so many animal sacrifices offered on this day that they were beyond reckoning and beyond counting. It says here in this 1 Kings chapter 8 account, all of that points to blood and blood being needed to atone for the transgressions and sins of God's people in order for them to be able to enjoy the glory of God in the immediate presence of God. None of that would be possible without blood sacrifice, a substitutionary offering in the place of sinners. God is willing to accept a substitute in the place of a sinner, a substitute who will shed its blood. And when the people of Israel laid their hands on the animal sacrifices, it was a transferring of their guilt from their own sin onto the animal. And in the animal was slaughtered and the blood that was shed was meant to point every single person in Israel to the sacrifice that was going to be necessary to atone for transgressions and sin once and for all, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This was a glorious day. This was a bloody day. And it's meant to point all of us to the sacrifice of atonement that Jesus Christ offered, that we can receive the benefits of, all the forgiveness, all the reconciliation to our holy God that we need in order to stand before him in his presence can be ours if we will repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. You know, there was a lot of quantity of blood that was offered up in the temple at the dedication But what we learn as we study throughout the scriptures is that quantity of blood can never make up for a lack of quality in blood. Quality of blood is what matters to our holy God. And there was one sacrifice who could have the quality of blood necessary in order to atone for our wickedness and our sins before God. And it was Jesus's. One drop of his precious blood is worth more in value than all of the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that were offered up all throughout redemptive history in this temple. And Jesus, through his five bleeding wounds on the cross, willingly shed his blood, which we'll remember through communion next Sunday night. He shed his blood to atone for our sins and to satisfy the wrath of God against our sins if we will believe. Will you believe, my friend? And if you have already believed, rejoice that our God, our glorious God, our holy God, would willingly send his son as a sacrifice for you and for me. And that leads us to our final point, that there's no God like our God. 
And I just want to read verses 22 and 23 again. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. I love this. And he said, oh, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. We learn here that God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. He makes promises and then he fulfills them. If you remember in 1 Kings 8, verse 14 and verse 15, if you read 15, Solomon said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. They were living right in the midst on this day of God fulfilling his promise to David, his father, and God promises and God keeps his promise. He he makes covenant and he keeps covenant because he is faithful, brothers and sisters. And a number of years ago, there was a, a, a Christian conference called Promise Keepers, which sought to emphasize the need for men to make promises and to keep promises. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, though we likewise are called to make promises and keep promises, and keep them before God. Ultimately, God is the promise keeper. He's the promise maker and the promise keeper. And the reason any one of us are going to end up in heaven on the final day is because God has kept covenant. He's made covenant. He's kept covenant. And he has shown steadfast love to his servants. That means that his love never alters or ceases. God is a rock. His love does not go up and down. His affections do not go up and down toward his people. He loves his people. He calls his people his treasured possession, Deuteronomy 7 says. And we who by grace have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, we are adopted into his family. And once God adopts one of us as his sons or daughters into his family, he never lets go. He's a father who never turns his back on his children. He shows steadfast love. He is a promise keeper. And that's why Solomon says here, there is no God like you. Great prayer, Solomon. There is indeed no God like our God. He's praised here for his faithfulness. He's praised for being covenant-keeping God, keeping his promises to his people always. And just as God has always kept his promises to his people Israel, God is always going to keep his promises to you, brothers and sisters here in the church. Not one of them will ever fall to the ground. So when he promises in Romans 8 that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ, nothing will ever separate you my brother, my sister, from his love. We are called, as the scriptures say here, to, as John said well earlier, to joyfully be his servants. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, but with joy to be his servants. And to walk before the Lord with all of our hearts. We are not to be half-hearted in our religion and in our devotion to Jesus Christ. And knowing that God is so awesome that there is no one like him, it's meant to motivate us that there's nothing more worthy that we can give our lives to than to Jesus Christ and to his kingdom and seeking him first and building up his house. And brothers and sisters, as we look in closing at these scriptures, let us remember God's steadfast love for his people is seen most in the sending of his son, Jesus. He will never leave us and never forsake us, even though every single day we fall short in our walking before him with all of our hearts. His grace 
has been lavished upon us and continues on as his steadfast love never ceases over our lives. The blood of Christ has satisfied the wrath of God against our sins. It has been our ransom price, which has delivered us from our slavery under Satan and to sin. We have been set free. We have been saved from wrath. We have been reconciled to our holy God. We have been forgiven of our sin, all because of the steadfast love of the Lord, which never ceases toward his people. And let us, as Solomon prayed here so well, close this morning by praying, but also singing in just a moment. There is no one like our God. He's awesome. He is risen. There's no one like him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just thank you that in the midst of these times in our world where there is so much turmoil and chaos, you are on your throne, as Alex said earlier. You are sovereign. You are ruling and reigning and in control of all things. And we thank you, Almighty God, that you sent your only son, Jesus, to come and die for sinners like us. Lord, Jesus is who this temple in the Old Covenant, Solomon's temple, he's the one to whom this temple's pointing to. Because Jesus, now you are the place where man can come and meet God. You are the place where we can come and receive the benefits of your offering and sacrifice and be reconciled and saved and forgiven for our sin. I pray that you would cause all of us to repent and believe and trust in you in a fresh way this morning. And Lord, would you fill our heart with zeal and fresh passion for you that we might seek you first, that we might prioritize the building of your house and that we might praise you with triumphant joy like Solomon did on this day in the fulfillment of your promise. There is no one like our God remembering that now are the days of labor, but very soon are the days of glory and of rest. We can't wait for that. And we thank you that this is what we have to look forward to as your people. It's so awesome. It's so wonderful, Lord. And we're so grateful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, Lord, we fix our eyes on you this morning. We fix our eyes on you this morning, Lord. Remembering, Lord, all that you've done for us. Remembering, Lord, that it's our, our hope is found only in you. Lord, so we look to you this morning. We look to you in our weakness, Lord. We look to you in our frailty. We look to you in our need, Lord. We're thankful, God, that you have answered each one. We are thankful that you have walked this trail before us, Lord, that you have gone before us and conquered, Lord, our sin, conquered death. Lord, thank you. I pray just for all of us afresh and anew that we would have our eyes fixed on you. Our great God, there's no one like you. Thank you, Lord.